This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. And now, from the Business Radio studios in New York City, this is the Real Estate Hour. Here is your host, Zach Scheinberg. This is the Real Estate Hour, Sirius XM, Channel 111, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Zach Scheinberg, managing partner of Windraven, a real estate investment and development company based in New York, as well as an adjunct faculty member at the University of Michigan, Ross. And as Steve Whitkoff used to call me, Double Wharton, because of the six years I spent there as an undergrad and grad student. First, some show details. The Real Estate Hour is live at noon Eastern every Friday, followed by Behind the Markets at 1. Past shows are available using our on-demand feature. Any questions about the show or for our guests, please email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com, and we'll try to answer them during the show. You can also follow Business Radio on Twitter at BizRadio111, that's B-I-Z-R-A-D-I-O-111. And you can follow me on my Twitter, on Twitter, at my new Twitter handle, at Zach Scheinberg, Z-A-C-H-S-H-E-I-N-B-E-R-G, which I'm going to use to post comments and interesting articles about real estate. Thank you to everyone tuned in across the country. This is my inaugural show as a host of the Real Estate Hour. And my goals for the show are first to give listeners the chance to see inside the real estate investment and development industries, to see how they really work through conversations with investors and developers and through my own experience and insights. Second, to discuss interesting topics in the real estate industry because this industry truly is fascinating and there's a lot more to it than sticks and bricks and money. And finally, I want to make this fun and entertaining for everyone listening, so questions and show ideas are welcome. Today, we are very fortunate to have in the studio Eric Gray. No relation, as far as I know, to Jonathan Gray or nope. Christian Gray. Unfortunately, nope. Okay. <laughs> Eric is the director of New York operations at Olshan Properties, which is one of the largest private owners of real estate in the United States, with about 14,000 apartments, seven hotels, and 10 million square feet of retail. Eric has about 25 years of experience in the business and, surprisingly, still an amazing head of hair. So clearly he is impervious to the stresses of working in this business, and which clearly I am not. Thank you, Eric, for coming on the show. Thanks, Zach. Pleasure to be here. Uh, So we're going to spend some time today talking about subsidized housing in New York, rent stabilization, rent control, how it works, what the rules are. But first, uh, let's start with your background. So 25 years ago was the early 1990s. We were still in the middle of the savings and loan crisis. Uh, Resolution Trust Corporation was still winding down banks. And at the time, real estate was not the business that it is today, and certainly not viewed by the market as a distinct asset class that had an entire industry built around it. So why do you want to do real estate? Good question. Uh, I was always interested in construction, development, and that facet of the business. I wasn't as uh, focused on finance and the uh, capital part of the business back then. And that's what drew me towards real estate. I ultimately started after college doing smaller odd jobs within real estate, working for property management companies, leasing apartments, ultimately getting a brokerage license, which opened up other opportunities. So when you were younger, though, did you at what point did you know you wanted to do this? Was there something you were doing as a kid that made real estate seem like a good idea? Was there a class that you took? What kind of gave you that push to decide that you wanted to jump into this? I was just always interested in building things or what how to build things or how things worked. Uh, I guess I had sort of an engineering-type mind, and that just led me towards thinking about doing that. I did some construction work as a kid, and I just enjoyed it. I enjoyed that facet of uh, working with my hands and creating something. Yeah, I always, uh, people always ask me this in interviews. They would always ask, why real estate? And I never had a good answer for it. And I always felt a lot of pressure interviewing to have some good answer. And the answer I wanted to give was, well, it just seems pretty cool. I mean, you get to build these massive buildings. You get to go to the top of a big concrete structure and look at great views around the city and maybe make a good amount of money, and it's fun, and you meet cool people. That was never an acceptable answer, though, in, a, in an interview that I had. For sure. So I had to make something up. Um, so what was your first job, and how did you go from that job to where you are now? Well, my first job in real estate, my first job was uh, as a paper boy at 13. What paper? Uh, Newsday on Long Island. Nice. Uh, I, right after I was 13 years old and I wanted a television in my room, my parents wouldn't buy one for me. <laughs> so they said, if you want one, buy it yourself. 
So I went out and got a job. Good and lesson in hard work absolutely. and how it pays off. And I probably on and off had a job ever since. Was Did the TV have the uh, the the ear antennas or was it a... It, it absolutely had the wire, the uh, ear, you know, the two antennas. It was not, It was not cable ready. It was a 13-inch <laughs> Sony Trinitan, Trinitan. That you had your Nintendo, your original Nintendo hooked up to? No, it was an Atari. Oh, Atari. Okay. Um, so how'd you go from there to first job to Paperboy to where you are now? Okay, obviously, uh, finished high school, finished college. Uh, after college, I uh, did a job doing more operational type work uh, in a, a facility. And I found the management aspect of it interesting. I didn't exactly like the industry that I was in. Mm-hmm. And I came back and a friend of mine was leasing apartments in New York City. And he said, I can make some quick money. So I tried doing that. And it was mo- there was money to be made, but it was a really, you know, Bad. It wasn't a. It was a tough job back then. You weren't really given. You were thrown to the wolves. You weren't given a lot of information, and I, I didn't really uh, feel like sales was my calling. Right. So, but I. But I, what I did see was the people on the other side of the transaction, the owners, the managers, and that was interesting to me. And I met a lot of. And and I wound up meeting some people, and I wound up working for some property managers, and then I wound up going to work for some larger developers and really with the eye of ultimately one day potentially going out on my own and, and, and building a portfolio for myself or joining with uh, the right group to go ahead and do that. And that's kind of how I've lived, you know, the last 20 years or so was with that goal in mind. Yeah. I had a similar experience and I think I hear this more and more that, um, I thought that I wanted to get onto the business side, and I came out of law school, and I was practicing real estate law at a firm in at Struck & Struck in Levan in New York. And I remember so distinctly, I was working on um, a a very large, about a billion-dollar real estate acquisition that a company was doing. We were representing the buyer of five subsidized housing properties in New York, and we'll get to that um, shortly. And I remember sitting at the closing, which was a five-day closing at Skadden, which was just inordinately long. They have good snacks there, though. Um, and I remember feeding the signature pages to the principal of the investment company, and I remember thinking to myself, as I'm peppering him with questions about his side of the business, I remember thinking to myself, I want to be the one sitting here signing the signature pages, not the one feeding the signature pages. Exactly. So uh, that was somewhat of impetus for me to think about how I could get over to the business side. Exactly. Um, So mid-career, you decided that you were going back to school. Right. And the real estate business, in my experience, has there's been a lot of most of the experience I think I've gotten has been on the job. But there is, I think, I mean, I went back to Wharton and got an MBA, so I think that there's a significant amount of value in going back and getting a degree. Why did you decide to go back to school in the middle of your career? What did you get out of it, and was it worth it going back and taking yourself out of the workforce for that period of time? Well, I actually did it at night, so I was working full-time while I was going to graduate school. Uh, I didn't have the luxury of uh, being able to to do it uh, during the day. Which makes it more difficult. Yes, for sure. Uh, but it's also, you know, it develops the good work ethic. Oh, without a doubt. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So I had, uh, you know, I didn't think twice about it. But the reason I went back to grad school was I had a, I was starting to develop a lot of experience on the asset level, I was the, which is at the property, how to operate a property, how to manage a property, how to keep it leased, how to keep it working and so forth. But I felt like I wasn't that uh, I didn't have a lot of knowledge on the finance end of, of on the finance end of, of the business, right? What is a property worth? How, how would I buy it? What, what, how would I know what it was worth to buy? Would I be making a good deal? And that's a, you know, it's a complicated transaction. It's mm-hmm. not like buying a house where it's just based on the comps of, uh, of the marketplace, right? It, there's a lot more financial transaction that goes into it, the income, the expenses, and the opportunity. Mm. So you felt that you had, you were missing some skill set, and that's part of the reason that you went back, the financial aspect of it. You had kind of the dirt experience and the management experience, and you wanted to pick up the finance. Exactly. Side, and you found that you did that. Exactly. Yeah, I felt that at graduate school, you know, that's probably one of the the best things that you learn there mm-hmm. is the finance end of it, how to, how to run cash flows, how to create 
you know, net present values, IRRs, all of the things that we now talk about on a daily basis in our industry that to the average individual is, you know, Chinese. Yeah. Um, so in 2003, after this was, I think, after you got out of school, you decided to start your own company with a partner and go out and start buying properties yourself. How did you make that? I mean, that's a not just in real estate, but in any business, that's a big decision to make to go from a job where you're getting a paycheck and you're have, I mean, not that there's always um, absolute security in any job, but you have some job security of health insurance. Now you decide you're going to break away and try to go do what you've been doing for somebody else on your own. And especially in New York, that's a hard thing to do because this is a pool of sharks. Absolutely. How do you make that decision to, to do that? In some respects, the decision was made for me. Um, As my, it usually is. My father passed away in the uh, summer of 2002. And he was, he was, uh, we had a third, he was the owner of a third generation business that was not exactly a, uh, a modern business. It was in a knitting textile business, which... 110 years ago was a very good industry in New York City but in you know the 1990s 2000 it was there was no industry in New York City anymore so my father passes away I have I all of a sudden have a company that I have to manage for the family I have employees we have real estate and we're losing money so I had to make some tough decisions and close the company down, which wasn't easy because it was started by my great-grandfather. Uh, but the positive of it was we owned some real estate. And I was, at that point in time, had a, some good amount of experience and a little bit of capital that I could go ahead and maybe do something with. And the kind of real estate that we owned was just small industrial buildings in Brooklyn and Queens. Sounds great. Today it does. <laughs> Back in the 70s and 80s when I used to visit these buildings, it wasn't so right. nice of these locations. You drive around then today, it's in Bushwick and Ridgewood and some areas that you wish, you know, we wish we would have held on to them in sure. those respects. But we sold them and we did 1031 exchange and we wound up buying some small apartment buildings in New York City, which was a which was a really good trade because at the time there was still a lot of value to do that. And that's kind of how I just started. So, you know, like I said, it, I had the skill set, I had the interest, and then the opportunity presented itself. Okay. I have a few more questions, but this is the Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, Series XM 111, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Zach Scheinberg, live in the studio with Eric Gray of Olshan Properties. So, Millhouse Properties was the company that you started. You decided to do it with a partner. So, two questions. How did you come up with the name? Do you have some weird obsession with The Simpsons? And why did you do it with a partner instead of by yourself? Uh, number one, Millhouse on The Simpsons is spelled with one L. Oh, okay. and, uh, Good to know. <laughs> and the name of our company was Millhouse Properties with two L's. And it really goes back to the story that I just said in that the real estate that my father's company owned, it was they were knitting mills. And the idea was we were taking these mills and turning them into housing. Oh, got it. Okay. And then with you decided to do it eventually with a partner because you started well, it by yourself and then you brought on a partner. Yeah, well... I brought on a partner because he found the deals right. for me. Right. So <laughs> that's sort of how uh, you know how it works. I was <clears throat> I had the the skill set, the knowledge, I had enough capital to tie up a a, a a transaction, but he had the deal to to do it with. So. Right, which is something I've always heard in the business from almost every investment professional when an architect is trying to uh, do a deal with a developer, an attorney wants to become an attorney for a developer, an investor. Oftentimes what I hear is we would be happy to use you, but one of the things that you can do to add value right now, which would make me more inclined to do it, is bring me a deal. Exactly. Because sourcing very often is really the hardest part of the industry, especially in a city like New York where you have so much competition um, that it's hard to find deals. Listen, you either have the deal or you have the money. Right. Or you have neither, in which case you can't do anything. Well, if you have neither, you have nothing. <laughs> but it, but it, if, you, if you have the money, you can make the deal, but you need the deal. Right. If you have the deal, you need the money. Right. So, so you get chicken and egg. Thing. Exactly. So then that's ultimately what creates a lot of partnerships in our business. Yeah. Um, so 
when you started, were you specifically focused from the outset on subsidized housing in New York, or is that something that just came up later because of deals that you saw? It more comes about because uh, when you invest in multifamily housing in New York City, it is just part of that investment strategy. It's almost unavoidable. Right. When I did, I actually, though, taking a step back, when I first started working for some developers, one of the firms that I worked for was a very large owner of rent-stabilized housing in New York City. So I got a lot of experience working with that product type and understanding the nuances of that product type. And so you recently did, uh, you bought a a rent-stabilized property uh, up by the George Washington Bridge. Correct. Um, Why do you like that area? Well, I think that area has a tremendous amount of opportunity. We've seen the Brooklyn effect where people, 20, 30-year-old individuals who have come to New York, they have decent jobs, but they can't necessarily afford core Manhattan rents, or do they don't want to pay core Manhattan rents? So they, so all of a sudden they moved out to Brooklyn. They moved out to these other neighborhoods, and they gentrified these neighborhoods and created really nice places to live. Upper Manhattan, we started seeing that in Harlem, but it kind of sort of stopped around 145th Street. However, the housing stock above that is some of the best in the city. Large- why, why do you think it stopped? Is it because of because transportation, uh, public transportation, does go higher than that? I just it- think, yeah, it it is it, no is it, no uh, probably good reason. The same reason that Ninety Sixth Street for a hundred years was like a, or I wouldn't say a hundred years for thirty or forty years was like an unnatural border. Right. You know, it's just sort of how patterns work, and. Closer and closer in to, to center, as and you just keep kind of circling further and further out, right? And that's why Bushwick started developing after Williamsburg. Yep. So Harlem was first, now Washington Heights is coming in. But Washington Heights has some really uh, unique characteristics of it. It has really large buildings with, with large apartments. It has unbelievable transportation, mm-hmm. better than Brooklyn. It has access to New Jersey and Long Island, and Westchester, and ultimately, the rent is, it's a rent play, and the rent is cheaper, and you can get really good value for your money up in Washington Heights. There was actually some articles in the New York Post, I believe, uh, and some other publications in the last couple weeks, where they're touting Washington Heights as the next Williamsburg. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. We'll see. But people are obviously making a bet that that could be what happens. Yeah. I mean, we're seeing the type of people who are renting our apartments up there, you know, are exactly the kind of people that that used to go to Brooklyn. Right. How do you... So what I find very interesting about New York City, I mean, especially because it's on an island and there's only so much land, um, and despite that, there was still more more development that happened more quickly in Brooklyn and even Long Island City versus Upper Manhattan. What do you think the reason is for areas in Brooklyn um, getting developed sooner or developers and investors paying and institutional money paying more attention to Dumbo, downtown Brooklyn, even as far out as as Bushwick um, and now the Gowanus. And that happens sooner than land that's actually in Manhattan Island proper. Well, I don't think there's as many land opportunities in, in Manhattan, even as far north as you can go on the island of Manhattan. Um Brooklyn, Queens, a lot of these neighborhoods had industrial pasts or commercial pasts that through rezonings and other initiatives created development opportunities. Right. You you know, I remember driving around Brooklyn 20, 30 years ago, even more, and you had most of the areas that are built up now with new construction were resident, were industrial areas, were, you know, were not residential locations. And that just provided developers with opportunity. You go up to Upper Manhattan, these are neighborhoods that were built before the war, full housing, you know, where they have, they had full populations for, for a very long period of time. It's just a matter of the opportunity exists within the existing housing stock versus developing new. Yeah. So for uh, listeners who are not uh, entirely familiar with New York. Can you just give them a quick overview of the map, Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan Island, Northern Manhattan, just so they have a sense of where everything is? Of course. So Manhattan, 
as everyone sort of knows, is the center of New York City. Or some people would say the center of the entire universe. Many people would probably say that. <laughs> uh, and where, where the Bronx is north of Manhattan, Brooklyn is to the south and east of Manhattan, and Queens is directly east of Manhattan. And we could talk about Staten Island, but we won't. So the George Washington Bridge deal, can you tell us a little bit about it, what um, your thinking was, how you found it, when you decided to buy it, what kind of cap rate did you buy it at? Sure. Uh, the best type of deals are deals where the seller are forced to sell or required to sell. And that's what this transaction was. It was a familial dispute, third generation, couldn't get along, which ultimately happens a lot in real estate, especially as ter- ownership terms drag on. And a lot of family members and, are involved over and, the generations. Right, and and inherit, people inherit property, and they inherit it with their cousins and so forth, and sometimes you just can't get along. So we, we were able to find a transaction. Uh, we we love the asset because we like to buy larger assets. Uh, it's 120 apartments. It sits on top of a subway line. So from there, you can be at Times Square in 20 minutes by train, which is a really nice commute for our residents. The apartments were big. They were ex- luxurious in terms of size and amenity and potential amenities. And we felt like the rents were significantly below market. There was opportunity to come in, spend capital where we can improve the building, renovate apartments, and obviously raise the rent and 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 create a much better product within that marketplace. And we've been very successful in doing that so far. And so that's typically the justification with buying a rent-stabilized uh, building because you're buying at an extremely low cap rate. And for those who are unfamiliar with the cap rate, I should know this at this point how to explain it, given that I had to explain it to 70 undergrads at Michigan this year. So a cap rate is um, the measure of your net operating income of the building divided by whatever your, the real measure would be the real basis that you're in for. So purchase price plus whatever your closing costs are plus whatever your capex is. So it's a measure of effectively your going in yield. And it's a way to compare different assets when you're buying assets. So you can justify, in this case, buying a building at a very low yield or low cap rate because the idea is for the execution of the business plan that you are eventually going to recapture some of these units, roll them to fair market, and we'll talk about this later in the show, and then ultimately make more income. Ultimately, that is correct. Or manage the building better if you think there's inefficiencies and reduce the costs. All of the above. So let's move on to uh, sourcing. How do you source deals in New York City? through a a network of people that I have developed over 25 years is probably what I would say the best source of of opportunities. Uh, There's a tremendous network of brokers in this city, whether they work for big brokerage shops or they work as individuals. They are the, in essence, the lifeblood of our business. They have all the information. They have all the access. And ultimately... 95% of deals or 99% of deals you're going to do, there's going to wind up being some middleman, some intermediary who's going to make that kind of introduction. Right. And I, historically, I think that I was, when I was very early into the industry, I was confused that there were brokers that could make a large amount of money by representing sellers and selling properties. And one of the things I, the reason that I didn't understand what the role was for the intermediary was if you have a really good property that makes a bunch of money there should be a healthy market of potential buyers out there. And what I didn't realize was that there are so many properties out there, and you can see these on various websites that are out there now on LoopNet and, I mean, uh, Crexy and all these websites out there. There's so many pieces of property buying. There's a limited number of real estate investment professionals that you need to have brokers that are sorting through those things who know uh, who the perspective, the best perspective buyers are for a particular property in a particular location in a specific asset class. So they are adding a lot of value. But one of the issues that I think that I've certainly run into in New York is the brokers that are really good. So Cushman, CBRE, JLL, Massey-Nackle before they got absorbed, E-Still, if I see a deal from them, I just assume that if ultimately I could potentially buy it and win the auction or win the bid, I've overpaid because they're so good at their job that they create this competitive process that 
the winner is really paying up for it. Is that what you found? Not always, but often that, you know, what we'll find is we'll track deals because when the brokers that you just mentioned often will be the first guys to bring a deal to the marketplace. And what we'll do is if we find something that's interesting, we track every deal that we that we see. And we know that more than likely we were, we're not a buyer at the pricing that these brokers are coming out at. Mm-hmm. But we will value it. And and ultimately, six months, a year from now, if that deal doesn't trade because nobody else be- believes in that value and everyone else is more disciplined with their underwriting similar to us, that that deal will come down and ultimately that buyer will, that seller will have to make a decision. Do I want to transact at a lower price than my expectation of selling it at or do I want to continue to hold it? And ultimately, we like to call it buyer, you know, seller fatigue, which is where a seller has seen many offers that have lowballed him over the years. He's not getting anywhere close to the price that the broker may have told him he was going to get. But he now has a legitimate purchaser at a price that I, you know, he's. He's come to accept. And by legitimate, you mean a buyer who actually has the financial has has the proven financial wherewithal to actually close, because that's something that sellers well, have to worry about. That's the other. That's the other point, right? Is that the prices of the assets in commercial real estate can reach up into the tens, hundreds of millions of dollars, especially in New York. Especially in New York, very few people can just reach into their pocket and write that check. So. One of the value adds that a, that a good broker will do for sure is qualify buyers and sellers. So one question that I always had when I was junior in the business that I was always afraid to ask because I thought I would look like an idiot if I asked somebody this was when you're doing diligence on a potential acquisition, you want to go walk the property. So this question was brought up to me by one of my students. They asked, what do you look for when you go, when you're walking the property? What is the purpose of doing it and what are you actually looking for? That's a good question. I mean, I think before you get serious about any property, you must go out and take a look at it. You must understand its location. And make sure that it exists. And besides, obviously, making sure it exists, but you need to understand the location. You need to get a feel for it, the location, the feel for how that building fits in within its neighborhood, within its location. You also need to understand the physical characteristics of the building. What is the condition of it? Uh, where is there deferred maintenance? Is you know Where is there an ability to spend capital to increase value? You're, you're looking at all of the... You're, in many ways, it's similar to when you buy a house and you hire a engineer to give a physical inspection of that house, to look at the boiler, to look at the windows, to look at the structure of the building, to, lo- to look at all of the, f- the components of the building and try to make an, ass- an, you know, uh, an assumption about its condition, whether it needs to be fixed, whether it can be pushed down the line to be fixed at a f- future date. All of these different things because when you ultimately value an asset there's a hundred different components that go into that value and many of those things are what is the cost it's going to take me to get this building to where it's in a healthy position right a and stabilized where you, position and where you can execute your business plan because you're underwriting certain rents and certain income that's based on a product that you want to be able to sell and when you go see the building it might turn out that the pictures in all of the broker offering memorandums they always look great, um, right. but you might go there and you might find that there are stains in the dry in the um, drop ceiling or the uh, elevator overrun room is uh, a mess. And you'd be amazed, at least in my experience, uh, just by talking to the building engineer, talking to the person out front who's doing security, peeking into the tenant spaces. You'd be amazed at the information you can get by just being there. Absolutely, and you know when you when you go to rent an apartment, you know we always say you spend the money down the middle, right? Where where are people you know walking right in the front door, right through your lobby, th- into your elevator, to your hallway, and into the apartment? And every part of that experience 
needs to be positive. Yep. Uh, we have to take a quick break, but we'll be back with Eric Gray of Olsham Properties. This is the Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 111, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Zach Scheinberg. We'll get into subsidized housing when we're back. Stay with us. We're back with the Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 111, powered by the Wharton School. Eric Gray of Olsham Properties is with me in the studio, and we're going to get into some talk about subsidized housing. How do you like that music? I thought it was kind of, I liked it. But before we get into subsidized housing, I have a little quiz for you, and let's see how well you do about how well you know your actual own career. Okay. Okay, so first question. On the Millhouse Properties website, what color tie are you wearing? Oh, and there's a prize if you get all eight right. I believe purple. Purple. That is correct. Very good. I didn't know that. I didn't think you'd know that. What was the name? What was the name of the broker who sourced your first deal? Eighty six University. Well, Josh Sachs. <laughs> I will actually accept that. The answer was no broker, so that counts. Correct. There was no broker, so we. It was to back. How do you source deals, Josh? who was my partner in acquiring it, had a relationship with the seller from prior business uh, dealings. Yeah, and that's actually a good lesson about sourcing. So I spoke to the students at Michigan about this a lot when they asked, how do you source deals? And my answer was always, I would make a list and say, from brokers, from websites, but you can source deals from anyone, any person, your dentist. Uh, Steve Wickoff sourced a deal from a dentist, was a dentist one time. Absolutely. Because everyone knows someone with a real estate deal. Absolutely. And it's just a matter of talking about what it is you do in the real estate business and letting people know that you're out there looking for deals, and you'll find that deals will start coming to you. And if you pay attention and you talk to people, you'll find stuff. Every now and then I get emails. I got one last week from my insurance broker. Not sure if this is something of interest to you. One of my clients' family is selling an apartment building. Yeah. You can cover them anywhere. All right, question number three. How did you source your second deal, 41 Academy? On the way, on the internet. Where? What site? I don't, oh, God, if I, I don't remember. It Maybe. was a web, I'll give you a clue. It was a website that was used for this kind of thing before there were really kind of sophisticated websites. It may have been eBay. I'm going to have to say no on that one. I was told it was Craigslist. It might have been Craigslist. All right, so we'll- It was we'll, one of those two, and- that was an interesting. Uh, put a question mark time. on that one. I'll, I'll just cancel that one out, so you still have a chance to win. Uh, what was the name of What was the name of the seller of Forty One Academy? Richard Makuji. <laughs> Josh told me that I like that name. That is correct. What was the best deal that you missed? What was the best deal that we missed? Yeah, that you, looking back, feel like you should have done. We should have bought the unsold share of apartments. On a co-op on 75th and 2nd. I'm drawing a blank of what the name of the building was. Uh, I bet if you got these questions from uh, from Josh, he will know that he probably gave you the name of the uh, of the building. Uh, he gave me the address, but he did not say that it was 75th. May of 75th, 76th Street. I believe it was a f- block through uh, on 1st Avenue. He said 1926 Northern Boulevard. Okay, that's a different that's a different transaction. Okay, well, people can people can differ, so I won't mark you down for that one. Uh, from what bank did you get your first loan? Um, New York Community Bank. That is correct. Approximately how many rent stabilized apartments are there in New York City? <sighs> About forty percent of the entire housing stock, I believe. Uh, couldn't I don't know the number. Tens of thousands. So I looked it up this morning. It said one million. There you go. All right, I'm going to have to mark you wrong on that one. <laughs> what was your biggest screw-up on the deal? This was actually my favorite question. What was my biggest screw-up in the deal? Yeah, because I, I like the answer to this. The answer that I got. That's a really good question. I mean, I've made... I, I will not say I haven't screwed up. I've screwed up many times, so it's hard to think of one that uh, was worse than the other. But uh, Well, the answer I got was, Josh said you don't screw things up. There you go. Okay, well, you didn't win. You didn't win the sure lunch. I, I'm not sure I agree with that. You didn't win the lunch, but uh, you know your career better than I thought you would. Um, okay, so let's get into subsidized housing um, or rent regulated housing, is sometimes referred to. What is the term? What does it mean? What does the term mean in well, the context? It's only of- subsidized by the private sector. So, but there's certain aren't there certain apartments where you're getting payments from rent-controlled tenants or you're getting payments from the local government that are well, subsidizing that's, rent. that's only in unique situations for senior citizens or disabled individuals. Okay, so or then, Section 8, which is the federal government. Okay, so then we'll refer to it as rent-regulated housing. What does the term mean in the context of New York City real estate? So 
New York City housing, as you just said, a million apartments make up the rent stabilization or the rent stabilized rent controlled apartments. So the this is a program that uh, came about after World War Two to uh, help returning veterans find housing. And it was supposed to be a temporary measure, but 60, 70 years later, we are still living with it and breathing it with it, and it will never go away. Most, well, shouldn't say never, but it will not go away for a very long time. Um, what rent-stabilized housing is, in essence, is laws and, and, and rules that govern lease tenancy and ability to what you can charge in terms of rent for per, for units and what tenants ha- and then certain rights of tenants like the like the the biggest one is that they have the absolute right to renew their lease every year so a landlord cannot kick a rent stabilized tenant out of a building under only very few circumstances the biggest one being if they don't pay their rent right but if that happens given that the f- landlord tenant courts certainly in New York are extremely friendly to tenants that's a process that probably will end in the tenant's favor and take a long time. Well, and it won't end in the tenant's favor if they don't cure it. Right. It will just take a long time. And courts give the tenant a very long opportunity to ultimately pay rent. Correct. They'll, they'll give them a, a long leash to cure those defaults. Uh, what's the difference between rent stabilization and rent control? Rent, it's really just the timing. So rent control are apartments that have been continuously occupied by the same um person or family unit prior to 1971 when the new rent stabilization law came into effect, which ultimately created more rules and regulations in terms of actually providing written leases and rules and, and, and noticing and uh, requirements of landlords to register with uh, the, the government agencies. So rent stabilization, it would be, would it be fair to say that rent stabilization somewhat codified or more formalized the concept behind rent control in 1971. Yeah, it made it more organized. Who gets to live in a rent-regulated, rent-stabilized apartment? Today, mostly uh, people who've lived there for a long time. People who move into rent-stabilized apartments today aren't necessarily moving into below-market rent-stabilized apartments, but they still get the rights of like automatic renewal and certain other rights that come with a rent-stabilized apartment, and their increases in rent would be capped based on what the percentage increase every year, which is determined by a uh, a um, a group of individuals. The Rent Guidelines Board. Rent Guidelines Board, exactly. And is it so rent stabilization in New York City, is this a city program? Is it a state program? Are there federal elements to it? Well, it's a state program, uh, but New York City is probably the largest uh, example of it. Westchester has some type of rent stabilization, as do other counties. But they they operate differently. What's an SRO? A single-room occupancy. So an SRO is... Buildings that kind of were like a hotel, so it was like a small room with often with a shared bathroom on a floor, and people would rent those rooms on a lo- on a longer term basis, thirty days or more. Mm-hmm. And you would operate it as, and it would many people would use them as an apartment, but it was really just a small room. Right, and to to what extent do these still exist in New York? So I know when the Ace Hotel um, on Broadway and Thirtieth or Twenty Ninth was redeveloped, there are still some SRO tenants that live in that building because it was an SRO building. Um, a bunch had probably left. They probably bought out a bunch, but there's still a few in the building that live there as their their home. That's right. And they have rights to the to those apartments for, in essence, perpetuity while they, as long as they live and pay rent. And now they have a very busy lobby when they go downstairs. That's right. Um, so I want to talk about rent stabilization, uh, rent regulation as a, as a public policy. Um, We hear all the time, and it's not just New York City, but we hear all the time about um, affordable housing issues in major cities around the country. And these programs um, are intended to address that problem. 
Um, but we hear about this all the time, and it seems that there has been nothing really new that's happened to address affordable housing issues, certainly in New York City, and it's something that Mayor de Blasio had talked about for a long time. Has there anything has anything happened since he's been mayor that has changed these programs? Well, I don't know if I'd say change the programs, but they this administration has definitely been very aggressive in trying to institute um, what they call, I believe, Article 11 proceedings, which is basically where landlords will offer their buildings into this program and in exchange for rent stabilize, maintaining these apartments as rent stabilized with um, capped rent increases, they can get a they can get a massive break on their real estate taxes. But to do these, it's a complicated tra- it's a little bit of a complicated transaction, and you also are required to um, to maintain the the status of these units for forty years. Right, and in, in terms of maintaining them, when you own a building, I mean, you own properties like this. The elevator breaks, the roof leaks, uh, the windows need to re- be replaced. If you have uh, tenants in subsidized housed or in rent rate, rent stabilized units paying a certain amount of rent that can only be increased a certain percentage each year based on what the department the DHCR or the rent board guidelines are if you need to do these capital improvements how do you as a landlord justify them well if it's a traditional rent stabilized apartment building um, you get what's called a major capital improvement increase based on the uh, money you put in for certain expenses. So if you replace the roof, if you replace the boiler, if you uh, do work on the exterior of the building, bricks, and things that benefit everybody, you have the ability on a prorated basis to increase everybody's rent. Now, in other more nuanced sections of stabilized housing, those costs aren't always being able to pass through to the tenants. So so this program is, I mean, the idea behind it is to give people who couldn't, can't afford to live in 15 Central Park West or the very uh, very expensive housing in New York, the opportunity to still live here, which is good for diversity of the city reason. Um, and it wasn't this year, it may have been four years ago, the first time that Mayor de Blasio, maybe it was four years before that, was running for office. Um, Jimmy McMillan, who is a candidate who I think formed the party that was called the Rent is Too Damn High Party, really resonated. He didn't he didn't win, obviously, but his message really did resonate because people do feel um, living here that rent is extremely high um, and these programs are meant to combat that. But these programs really are uh, kind of stepping into fair market situation where um, people, you know, there's an argument that could be made that said that if people are willing to pay, then um, rent should float with whatever the market is willing to bear. So in your opinion, what is the benefit of having these programs? Well, the benefit of these programs in certain neighborhoods are where people are on, you know, a tighter budget and, and, it allows them, in essence, to cap their future exposure in their housing, which which to a majority of New Yorkers is a real benefit. To, mo- to everybody, it would be a real benefit, but to certain people, working class individuals, uh, that's, you know, who teachers, government workers who have a set salary that have very, you know, limited increases for inflation it allows them to know that they that they could live in their apartment in the long term now if you look at oh excuse me if you look at more traditional manhattan areas where uh the where you know rents are very high upper you know upper west side upper east side greenwich village um the more traditional manhattan neighborhoods where People are living in rent-stabilized apartments for fifteen hundred dollars a month or less, or or whatever, in an apartment that could rent for five, ten times that amount. That is is not the best use of you know of this program, right? To the person living in that apartment, it is the best use of this program. It allows somebody to stay in a neighborhood that they've lived in for a long period of time. But ultimately, everybody else in that building who is paying a higher rent is probably subsidizing that person's rent. 
Let's get back to that in a second. This is the Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Zach Scheinberg. My guest today is Eric Gray of Olsham Properties, and we're talking about subsidized rent-regulated housing in New York. So I want to talk about um, the point that you just made for a second. You hear sometimes in the newspapers about these um, people who live in rent-regulated apartments or just being in the business, you hear these stories about people who live in rent-regulated apartments who are paying this very, very low amount of rent, except it's their second home, or they make a huge amount of money. Um, and that is clearly not in the spirit of the program. And it's it's unclear um, what the extent of this, the kind of taking advantage of this program is. In your experience, is this something you come across a lot? Is it something that's kind of not that big of an issue? And then how do you, in your mind, given that you have experience with this, if you were the mayor, how do you address this? Yeah. I mean, it, you're experiencing this less and less because people have become more sophisticated. Landlords have become more sophisticated. Tenants have become more sophisticated. And just as time has gone on, a lot of these secrets have been uncovered. They still exist, certainly. Uh, and they're and they're very smart tenants who know how to get around these rules. And the statutes that are available to landlords to try and prosecute these, you know, d- discrepancies or other things are not easy and very pro-tenant. And ultimately... You, it's hard to to win, but we, you know, if you do have a real case of somebody in certain situations, like you've said, uh, you do have to, you know, take it. You do have to, you know, protect your rights. Right. So, no matter what the program is, if there is some kind of benefit that is benefiting a lot of people, there's always probably going to be someone out there who's going to try to take advantage. Of always, it. always. Um, so. I'm sure every, many people who read the papers and pay attention to real estate in New York or in the business have seen stories about tenants who live in these apartments, um, who have been there for a long time, who are probably benefiting in a way that is necessary from these programs, and then an owner or developer comes along and decides that they want to redevelop the building. And as a result of that, in order to in order to redevelop the building, they need to take um, they need to move the tenants out of the building. So I think most people have heard of, uh, in the real estate business in New York, have heard of the $17 million buyout for the last tenant at 15 Central Park West um, before Zeckendorf was able to redevelop it. How common is that? Because it's it's sensationalized in the media, but you've done some of these things. And is, does everybody get $17 million? And then if they do, how do I get into one of those apartments? Yeah, we all should be in that apartment. No, <laughs> very few people get $17 million or anywhere close to that amount. The calculation that you would buy, that you would might pay somebody to vacate an apartment is just a math exercise. How much rent can I get? What, how much rent am I getting? And how much rent is it going to and how much capital is it going to take me to renovate that apartment to get that new rent? Right. And then I want to get a certain return on my money to to do that. And then there's a delta of how much more I can pay to get that return. And that's ultimately the business decision. If that delta is ten thousand dollars, then you're willing to pay ten thousand dollars, not twelve, not fifteen, not a hundred thousand. In some instances, I've seen buyouts that justify two hundred, two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. I've seen buyouts that justify three million dollars. Mm-hmm. They don't happen that often, right? But if you have a unit um, on Central Park West at Sixtieth Street and a developer wants to build an extremely expensive condo, you're in a pretty good position because given what that developer probably thinks he or she can sell the building out for, they have much more room in their budget. Right. Like I know a friend who I helped advise who had a very large loft in Soho, which they lived in since the 1970s. They were part of that, you know, that whole renaissance of that neighborhood and ultimately they were able to get multiple millions of dollars through that buyout through through a buyout transaction but again that's a 6000 square foot apartment that could potentially be worth you know 20,000 or more dollars in rent right so that's a different exercise most apartments don't rent for that amount of money and how does the how does the buyout process work so historically it seemed a little bit wild westy it was. And then now it's a little less so. So how did it used to work and what happened? Well, and what ha- it was just conversations before, but there was, but 
like any other program or anything else, people take advantage of it. And you had a lot of landlords who bought buildings at very aggressive pricing and their business plan was a little unscrupulous and it was and it was to try to move out rent stabilized tenants and not all rent stabilized tenants you know want to move or are not entitled to their department and when you start harassing legitimate tenants that becomes a problem and tenants have a lot of resources available to them a lot of organizations a lot of legal uh, organizations that will support them and uh, and fight for them. So the city has taken it under its sort of uh, jurisdiction to create some rules and regulations that require more noticing and timeframes of when you can talk to tenants. Right. And one of the mechanisms, I guess, that exists is there are a bunch of landlord-tenant lawyers out there that focus on this kind of thing and they work on a contingency basis and they take a percentage 25% or 33% of whatever the buyout is. And on some of these larger buyouts, they end up making a good amount of money. I won't mention who they are here because they don't need any help marketing from me. Yeah, um, it's a whole cottage industry. But one of the things that I found in working on working on some of these deals uh, on in rent-stabilized buildings is I've never changed the price because of uh, an attorney being involved. So what value do they actually bring in? Do they bring any value or are they just taking money out of the pocket of whoever the tenant is in the building that should rightfully get that additional money? You know, ultimately, more buyouts happen because of some other type of a disagreement. So whether it's a litigation because they're not paying rent or um, there are physical condition problems within the apartment or they have life changes or whatever, that's often when you will see these kind of buyouts happen. And from my experience and the way we like to operate is lawyers typically only get involved in a, when a different issue is part of the conversation. So we are almost out of time, but um, I, saw, I saw a sign hanging on the building next to Penn Station with LeBron James in a Knicks jersey. This doesn't really have anything to do with real estate, but is there any chance that's going to happen? He did. Uh, I just saw he uh, he announced he was uh, not a, going with uh, his free agent option and will announce to be a free agent. So, and, and when he did, go not back, very good odds. But <laughs> and when he moved back to Cleveland, it it actually did have a meaningful impact on the economy. I'm sure it was a, a, a real correlation. Unfortunately, we are out of time. Thank you very much to Eric Gray for joining the show today. Special thanks to Patty Hall and Emily Anton, my producers, and sound engineers Danielle Bruno and Jeff Simmons. The Real Estate Hour airs every Friday at noon Eastern on Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 111, powered by the Wharton School, and episodes get replayed throughout the week. For more information on the show, please check out our website, SiriusXM.com slash Business Radio. Show ideas and questions can be emailed to businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow me on Twitter at my new Twitter feed at Zach Scheinberg, Z-A-C-H-S-H-E-I-N-B-E-R-G. That's the show for this week. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. I'm Zach Scheinberg. Keep it real. Estate. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 